2: Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along
1: the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. It is me, Rain Wilson. And I'm Reza Aslan. Hey, um,
2: guess what I was watching last night?
1: What? On, on TV? On um, TV. That's right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to go with uh, Gilmore Girls Reboot.
2: Well, yeah, normally, yes. You know me well.
1: Okay. But no, 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 no. I was
2: watching Star Trek. Star Trek, my favorite show, your favorite show.
1: Great. Love it. One of my favorite shows. Um, um, was it... Was it? Um,
2: no, no, no. I know what you're going to say, and it wasn't an uh, episode of you as Harry Mudd. Congratulations for the 10,000th time.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It really was a dream come true. It really was.
2: Yeah, it was my dream come true. Not just for you. I, I, by the way we you promised me that you would get me to be a red shirt on there in some way and I'm holding you to that promise get up to
1: Toronto and I'll get you I'll get you to I f- a red shirt I will fucking walk to
2: Toronto Cake. just to be phasered in the first act <laughs> I, I will happily
1: I'd like to phaser you in the first act
2: We're both Star Trek fans and you know the 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 thing that I love about that Star Trek world, there's a lot of things that I love about the Star Trek world. But the one thing that I love about is the whole like, you know, there's no money
1: thing, right? They don't have any money in the Star Trek universe. Yeah, yeah no, no, I've totally noticed that too. There's no there's no money, there's no credit cards and bank accounts. Um you know, it's a more evolved version of human society and government and the concept of money is obsolete. Yeah, I, in fact, I actually have this quote here from Jean Luc Picard, oh, he brought the quotes, greatest, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest sure. of all
2: Star Trek cabinets. He says, "quote People are no longer obsessed with the accum uh, Maybe I'll do it in his in his uh, voice. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We've eliminated hunger, that is the worst
1: Jean Luc Picard that, accent yeah, I've ever yeah, heard.
2: I should probably just read it in a normal. Just voice I think so just don't. read the quote. Yeah, okay. okay. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We've eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. We've grown out of our infancy. The challenge is to improve yourself, to enrich yourself.
1: Make it so. Make it so. Number one. I have to go number two. I think what's really interesting is that um, Gene Roddenberry knew something that we're maybe starting to figure out, that the modern economic system of today may be unsustainable and really needs to move out of its infancy. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. But I mean there's so much
2: there's so much messiness to it. Like I get it. Okay, so if you're on a ship, then you know, you can just kind of replicate a sandwich whenever you want to. You don't have to pay for the sandwich. Well, that's that's the
1: key, Reza. Is technology eliminated the need for money because there's no more scarcity because there's replicators. If everyone you're, had a replicator right. and like, I would like a bowl of soup right now, I would like an Earl Grey tea, you know, then you just <laughs> press a button and uh, your needs are met. All
2: right. But what if you're not in, what if you're not in like um, Starfleet? Do you, do you still get, the, you still get your free
1: soup? This is the weird you know. thing about Star Trek is we never <laughs> get to see life on other planets with earthlings. Like, what do they do? Like, are they farmer? They don't have to be a farmer because you've got replicators. What are they doing? They're they're juggling, they're so bowling. What is life is it. like with your average, not even a Starfleet member, just someone who lives under the empire? Exactly. I mean, like, there still has to be an
2: economy, right? You still have to, like, have a commodity and, and like, produce things People have and exchange jobs. things. And so, like, even in the, the glorious, you know, utopian, no-money world of Star Trek, it's still a bit messy to figure out how sort of the money of the future is going to to look like, you know?
1: I am sure there are still people in the Star Trek future that are the haves and the (laughs) have-nots. Yes.
2: (laughs) And so this got us thinking about a fundamental question, a question that like, honestly, we don't, really ask ourselves that much. I know that the first time that I asked this question, it, just the asking of it expanded my brain to uncomfortable mm. proportions, which is, what the fuck is money? What is money?
1: What, I mean, like, what is it? It's a, it's a construct. It's yeah. definitely a construct. Yeah. It's One dollar gets we... you something at a 99 cent store, essentially. Yeah. And we've I, all decided I, I, that. You know, you get some... A mini Pringles and, is $1 and this is the value right. of a mini Pringles and it's a $1. And the,
2: and this little piece of
1: paper, which in and of itself has no inherent
2: value. Mm-hmm. Just like we stamp a one on it and we all just agree. We all just agree that this piece of paper is worth $1. It's like a, a social agreement, right? It only works if everyone is willing to play by the game. And I guess the thing that is truly fascinating to me is that everyone is willing to play by the game. And no one questions it. No one questions it.
1: But yet it causes so much pain, chaos, division, and turmoil. When you think about it, is money the root of all evil? Yeah, kinda, yeah. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. So this brings up a series of very fascinating questions and good thing we have the iconoclastic Charles Eisenstein here to help address this very profound question. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know Charles Eisenstein, uh,
2: well, he is a brilliant public speaker, he's an author, he's written on a bunch of different themes. Small things like, you know, civilization, consciousness, spirituality, human cultural revolutions, the future of humanity. All that stuff. Like, you know, little, little things. The kind of
1: stuff that I like to think about. Some of his books include Sacred Economics, The Ascent of Humanity, and most recently, Climate, A New Story. And he's also a contributing editor to the website Reality Sandwich. Mm. Uh, He went to Yale, studied philosophy and mathematics, lived in Taiwan for years, became a translator, speaks fluent Mandarin. And he was on Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Sunday in 2017, which sounds like a big deal, but so was I. I mean, wow. Just saying,
2: I'm just saying, like, you know, okay, congratulations, Charles, you did what I did. (laughs) So, Charles Eisenstein, thank you for joining us. Uh, Okay, you're going to have to deal with the fact that Ray and I are both like gigantic fans. Charles heads, do you, the Eisensteinians? Uh, Yeah,
3: well, you know, that
1: happens all the time, so, you know.
3: You're used to it.
2: You're used to it. Uh, Yeah,
1: but what are your fans called? (laughs) We do need a name. (laughs) Eisensteinians. I like
2: Eisensteinians.
1: Yeah, that's good. Eisenstands. Eisen Eisenstans were Eisenstans. Oh, we, Why didn't
2: we think of that? Uh, by the way, I'm the original Eisenstan. Okay, I mean, Rain joined the
1: yes. the Eisenstan. He, I'm I'm late to the, yeah, to band the Stan wagon, wagon.
2: Very very yeah. late. Uh, I I read this book in 2013. Uh, see, look, I have like the original. Oh, not wow, even yeah. the updated. Not even the updated copy. Uh, this book absolutely just changed. The revised. A revised
1: copy is so much better than the original copy though.
2: <laughs> All right, okay, let's this, now that we've settled
0: that I'm a waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our US-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
4: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No,
1: Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case,
4: I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Bigger uh, Eisenstein than Rain is. Uh, sacred economics. So from the start, what you talk about is the, the kind of um, – interaction or let's just say the the relationship between spirituality and money. And we're going to get into what is money, where did it come from? That's the stuff that like just is just drives me crazy. I love that conversation. But before we get there, let's just kind of start at the
3: very beginning. How is money spiritual? Okay. So, I would not say that it's about the relationship of spirituality and money. I would say more that it's about the relationship of mythology and money. Mm-hmm. And by mythology, I mean the basic defining stories that run our civilization. The way that we answer questions like Who am I? What is a human being? How does change happen in the world? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What's real? What's important? How do we live life? Like all these basic questions. What's the nature of the universe? And And the thesis of the book is that money is part and parcel of the way that we answer those questions. It's part and parcel of the story of the world that civilization holds and that this story is in a state of unraveling. The way that we have answered these questions, the way that we've understood ourselves and understood the world isn't working anymore. Therefore, the money system also is failing us. Mm. leading to a, um, a point of crisis and perhaps um, a rebirth, a different kind of money system that partakes in a different mythology and a different uh, state of human beingness. Yes. That's the, the broad outline.
0: Yeah,
2: you're right in the book. Yeah. So it is hugely iconic and hugely significant that the one thing on the planet most closely resembling the foregoing conception of the divine is is money. It is an invisible, immortal force that surrounds and steers all things. It's omnipotent and limitless. It's an invisible hand that it is said makes the world go round. yet money today is an abstraction at most symbols on a piece of paper, but usually mere bits in a computer. It exists. It exists in a realm far removed from materiality.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's in the chapter where I, I discuss how um, our ideas about what spirit is come, or are or, or, or suggested by, or informed by the, um, what money is, mm. and and that the abstraction of money from actual things uh, mirrors the abstraction of spirit from matter, and that the healing would be to bring spirit back into matter, not to ascend to some separate realm mm-hmm. of spirit, but, but to uh, embody spirit, to see, to understand that sacredness is in the material world, not apart from it. And maybe that is the foundation of restoring sacredness to money and restoring humanity to ecology, rather than uh, walking the path of, of separation and domination, and conquest. It's all part of the the same movement. So I
1: love that the title is Sacred Economics and that you just talked about, you brought a link between spirit and sacredness. I was uh, attempting and struggling with for a while writing an essay about sacredness uh, because I had experienced some when I went on a pilgrimage for my faith community, for the Baha'i faith. And I experienced this really deep, profound sense of sacredness on this pilgrimage, essentially. But I found it almost impossible to define what is sacred. And I think you did a a hell of a job in your introduction. But before we get to sacred economics, how do you define sacred? Because you're you're talking about sacredness being in the real world, not some kind of like airy-fairy abstraction.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hesitate to define it because it's trying to put a greater within a lesser Something that's infinite inside of concepts, but mm. what I say in the book, and and this gets at something of it, is that for for something to be sacred, well, for one thing, everything's sacred. Either everything is sacred or nothing is sacred. Mm.
1: Well, is it is a mini mall with a with a Taco Bell and a massage parlor and a uh, and a Western Union? Is that sacred? And it looks like crap, and it's just thrown up thoughtlessly in suburban Omaha. Is that sacred?
3: It's a lot harder to see it as sacred. Uh, when, when something is stripped of its relationships and stripped of its uniqueness, then it's also stripped of its sacredness. So, so the, um, and, and, and so basically what I'm saying is that sacredness is a function of uniqueness and relatedness. Hmm. 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 Like if I, if I see you, Rain, as, uh, some, just a member of a dehumanized category. Right. Then, like, I douchebag am, Hollywood elite. Yeah. Dishbag Hollywood elite, you know, like, <laughs> that's what he was trying yeah, to say. Um, uh, uh, clueless white guy, whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. Then I am not seeing your absolute unique individuality. Mm. And I have dehumanized you and desacralized you. And if I, if I am not aware of your relationships, I just take you as this, this separate, discreet individual. Out of context, I can't see the the way that you are in the world. I can't see your embeddedness. So you're just like a commodity, which is Mm. also standardized, shorn of its uniqueness and abstracted, extracted from its relationships. Like you you purchase something on, on Amazon and you have no idea where it came from, what labor went into it, what ecological cost went into it, like all of these relationships that gave birth to it, all gone. But it's so convenient. I press a button
1: and the next morning there's AA batteries at my doorstep, Charles. (laughs) Yep. Hey, Milkshakers, NordVPN is a secure way of preventing your personal information from being spread around the web when using Wi-Fi. The line of protection is wonderful. It prevents spam, viruses, and other unwanted privacy intruders. Listen, nowadays, VPNs are really important, you know?
2: Like, there's yep. so much yep. uh, security problems going on on the web, you know? Oftentimes, when I need to, like, log on to my university account, I have to do it through a VPN. This is fantastic. And with Nord, I can access content from over 59 countries just by changing my virtual location with a single click. Like well, Obviously, we here live in the U.S., but with NordVPN, we can be anywhere in the world. We can access content
1: from any of those regions. When we're traveling, folks, we're often using insecure restaurant or airport Wi-Fi, which are notorious for stealing identity. NordVPN is a great way to protect you and prevent hackers from stealing your information. You can even use NordVPN on up to six devices, laptop, phone, smart TV, et cetera, et cetera.
2: So find out what we're talking about. Go to nordvpn.com slash milkshake or You can use code Milkshake to get up to 70% off your Nord VPN plan plus one additional month for free. It's also risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. Folks, we've all made new year's resolutions. I know that for me, I've decided that I want to be more sustainable, less wasteful. And now there's an easy way to do that with eliminating single use plastics. Grove Collaborative is here. With reusable swaps to make a lasting impact at home for your family and the planet. A new year means a fresh start and a chance to change the way you care for the planet. Now's the perfect time to make your home healthier, happier, and more sustainable. Discover everything you need for a sustainable home at Grove Collaborative. Here's how it works Grove carries hundreds of products aimed at replacing single use plastics across your home and your personal care routine. By 2025,
1: Grove itself is gonna be 100% plastic free. A new year means new commitments to those we care about, family, and the planet. And if you've been wanting to make more sustainable choices for home care, beauty, and more, start today with Grove Collaborative. Ready to make 2022 the best year yet for your family and the planet? Start a sustainable revolution at home with Grove Collaborative. Shop over 150 brands that make a real
2: impact grove's concentrated cleaners and refillable glass bottles are friendlier to the planet and twice as effective as the leading natural brand so you can switch to sustainable products for every room in your home from laundry care to hand soaps and more grove has you covered with safe formulas and refillable packaging that never compromise on performance we in the aslan household we all uh swore uh, that starting in 2022 we would all be as plastic-free as possible. We've given up plastic straws. We're using refillable containers as often as possible. But, you know, until now, I had no idea what what to do about all like my household cleaners and, you know, disinfectants and things like that. So I am all in on this whole Grove Collective thing.
1: So milkshakers, join over 2 million households already shopping sustainably at Grove. Go to grove.com slash milkshake today to get a free gift set worth up to $50 with your first order. Plus shipping is fast and free. Get started right now at grove.com slash milkshake. Grove.com slash milkshake.
2: Well, all right. So let's tell the story of money as it has been sort of crafted over the, you know, millennia. Um, a lot of the early parts of your book, uh, Uh, just this fascinating history of like how the concept of money um, arose. You you sort of talk about this notion that everyone sort of assumes, which is that the earliest form of money or the earliest form of sort of commodity exchange um, was the barter system, right? Uh, that Like the thing that you learn when you're in like fourth grade that, uh, oh, you know, in, in the old days, what we used to do is say, um, you've got a chicken? Well, uh, I've got uh, a necklace. I'll give you this necklace for that chicken. And that's how, you know, the, the original economy, human economy arose. But that ain't true, is it, Charles? That's not nope. actually true at all. Tell us about the earliest
3: form of... Um, of the economy. Yeah, um, yeah, the the, the barter, that the idea that money arose from, as an improvement on barter is an economist's fiction. It's total fiction,
2: but, yeah. it, I, but yeah. I, I swear to God, if you asked like 10 people on the street, 10 of them would say, yeah, it began as
3: yeah. bartering. Yeah, actually the original economies were always gift economies. That's right, the gift economy. Tell us about the yeah. gift economy. Well, in a gift economy, so, If, if I, if, if, if you're in my community and you are, you need something and I have that thing, um, I give it to you, uh, because I know, well, not because I know, but I know, and I've seen my entire lifetime that gifts flow toward the need. Therefore, I have no insecurity. If I have nothing, that's okay because I know my community is going to take care of me. And in fact, I know also that whoever is the most generous and gives the most is also, uh, receives the most gratitude and is in fact the most wealthy and the most secure. Hmm. Another thing about gift culture is that, is that a gift relationship creates a bond. Like if you, if you sell me something, um, Say, like, you sell me your, uh, you know, autographed photo, your Hollywood autographed photo for $500. Okay. And, and, and like you give me that and I give you $500. The transaction's over. But if you just give it to me and I, without a, a return, now I kind of owe you one. It's like if you're, if you, if you go to your neighbor and, you borrow some sugar or some eggs or something like that. Now your neighbor feels at ease to come and borrow something. Hey, I need my lawnmower broke down. I need to borrow your lawnmower. Like a relationship is created through the giving of gifts. Imagine how strong a community is after years and decades and generations of gifts circulating. So that was the original economy and that works fine on a small scale. When everybody's gifts and needs are visible, and you can have informal systems that that kind of govern who gives what to whom under what circumstances, but when when larger civilizations emerged, uh, these systems of of reciprocity and, and gift uh, no longer could function to bridge gifts and needs because there's just so So many of us like there's just so many of us you know and you didn't know everybody you know and the, the the phenomenon of the stranger arose and and the like you don't trust a stranger you don't know this person uh so so that was the that was the circumstances under which money arose first as credit actually not as coinage not as cash first as as a system of accounts and then eventually like in the 8th century BC or something, uh, coinage arose. Uh, anyway, I can, I'm not going to go too so, much into the so nuts and to, bolts of that. So
2: essentially what you're saying is for millennia under this gift economy, essentially the, the purpose of um, these kinds of, you know, commodity exchanges were, the purpose of it was primarily to rearrange relationships, in in the community, right? So this notion that you know I will give you goods now in exchange for some goods in the future that I have more than I need, and so I give it to someone who needs something um, with the understanding that you know eventually it's not it's not barter in the sense that okay now you owe me a chicken. It's more like. When I need something, I just assume that you will be there for me the way that I was there for you. So it's about like building relationships, building communities. Uh, it it keeps you from hoarding, obviously, right? Because what would be the point in hoarding? Why, why would I keep 30 chickens if I don't need 30 chickens and you need a chicken? I'll just give you a chicken and then one day you'll give me a chicken back. It keeps sort of social stratification from forming, right? You you don't have like necessarily haves and have-nots because we all just sort of rely on each other. It creates cooperation um, instead of, you know, competition where it's like who's got the most chickens. It doesn't really matter because we're all relying on each other. This is how we are for millennia. And then for really no other reason than... Uh, because it's just convenient. Because we're becoming larger, and you know our community is expanding. So just out of convenience, we come up with this sort of symbolic gesture, this thing, right? This like thing that we're going to call money. And you're right; we're not. We don't. We're not even talking about anything even standardized yet. No coins, no bills, nothing like that. Just this concept that it almost becomes a. a a stand-in for the exchange—is that what it is? Like, in other words, uh, give me a chicken. Here's this piece of paper for that chicken, and the and the paper is representative, or the I mean, there's no paper, but you know what I mean. Like the shell, whatever. It's representative of um, the the exchange, but it doesn't really. It doesn't. The, the shell itself doesn't hold any intrinsic value. It's just representative of the fact that we have made this exchange. Am I, am I saying that right? Am I, did I do that right?
3: Yeah, I mean, kind of. I, could, you know, I could expand on some of the details, but, but basically the, the, the key thing is that the, the, the token of whatever kind, it could be a cowrie necklace, you know, it could be a coin, it could be um, an entry in a, in a ledger, uh, but whatever it is, there's a social agreement about it that renders it valuable. This is even true uh, with, uh, you'd think that ancient coinage was all gold and silver, which has intrinsic value, right? No. It didn't, that's um, right, yeah. They, they, they used all kinds of base metals for coinage also. And in fact, even when they are made of gold and silver, the value is higher than the underlying value of the metal. And even if you're talking today about gold, like we talk about it has intrinsic value, but does it really Outside of a social perception of value, is gold right. very useful to you?
1: Yeah, Not I always really. wondered, like, why is... Go- oh, gold is so... I mean, there's aspects of gold. Like, if you melt it, you can shape it in various forms, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't corrupt, scarce. you know. But- I mean, it's scarce, It's good I for guess.
3: electronics and stuff, but if it's so useful, then why is two-thirds of all the gold ever mined in history sitting in vaults? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's a
1: social agreement that that gold is worth something. But this is another fallacy about money. And I think for a lot of Americans, it's like, well, the the dollar is meaningless once we've abolished the gold standard. We used to link the dollar to a bar of gold. We no longer do that. So uh, it doesn't really mean anything. But it never really meant anything. It's always just a social agreement, isn't it?
3: That's right. It's a social agreement.
1: Yeah, it needs,
2: it needs that sort of, that stamp on the coin. Otherwise, it doesn't, it's
3: just, you know, a, a metal. Here's another thing money is, okay? Another way to think about it. Money is magic. Imagine if you've, you've visited, you know, some primitive tribe, or you thought they were primitive, and they are drawing these symbols and manipulating these symbols in the superstitious belief that the material world will change thereby. Well, guess what? We do the same thing. We manipulate symbols called the called money that can cause a nation to rise or fall, cause somebody to lose their home. If you have like the power of this magic and you send them the appropriate like voodoo script in the mail, you can devastate their lives. The script says account balance on top of it. You can wielding the power of money, human beings are enslaved, sending all of their productive surplus to the master of this system of magical talismans. So it it actually is um, a very ancient way of managing and controlling other human beings, a power that could be used in destructive and productive ways. And that's why I also, that's why I keep going back to what is the story of money and what bigger story is it part of? Right. That's really the key because it's, money doesn't exist in isolation. The, it's not like we had this bad idea called whatever fiat currency or fact, fractional reserve currency. And then everything went downhill. It was actually an inevitable development in a bigger context, the, a development that has maybe reached, reached its. Finale now. And we have to really ask like not only like what's the most clever technical idea for a more rational money system, but but beyond that, what kind of money would embody our emerging values, our ecological values, our social yeah. values, um, and, and even like our our changing consciousness, yeah. our changing understanding of what is a human being and what is a human being for?
2: If you're like me, as soon as you wake up, you're on the go. I mean, the next thing you know, it's lunchtime. You haven't eaten anything. No wonder you're always hangry, but what are your options? So you could run through a drive through and grab something that you know is not good for you. That's not a good idea. Or you can try Huel.
1: Huel. Human fuel provides all the carbs, proteins, fats, fiber, and 27 essential vitamins and minerals you need. And everything, folks, is plant-based. They have a wide range of convenient on-the-go options for someone who wants to eat healthy but doesn't have a ton of time, like me and Reza, because we're always podcasting all day long. I did not eat lunch today. That is a fact. Huel powder comes in all the classic flavors like vanilla, chocolate, salted caramel, and more. Mix it with water in the free shaker you'll get with your first order, and you're good to go. There's also a pre-mixed ready-to-drink option to help you save even more time. And if you want even more protein or less carbs, there's a naturally
2: gluten-free option called Huel Black Edition. It's the ultimate human fuel. And Huel's new hot and savory meals are fantastic. They've got mac and cheese, Mexican chili, Thai green curry, and a few others that you just got to try to believe. And each one of
1: them takes less than five minutes to make. Huel is proof that fast food can be good food. I love it, and you will too. And right now, you can save $15 in your first order, plus get free shipping, a shaker, and a free t-shirt. Oh my God, free t-shirt. Thank you. Go to Huel.com slash milkshake that's h-u-e-l dot com slash milkshake to save $15 on your first order plus free shipping a shaker and a t-shirt Huel.com slash milkshake pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah,
0: that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
3: Mix things
1: up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
0: Ba ba pa pa.
4: Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?"
2: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Ha ha in my dentist's office. More
1: than once, actually.
4: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I
1: never win and tell.
4: Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and
2: conditions apply. See website for details. Shake. Well, so another, another big uh, psychological effect, I guess, uh, is greed right? This notion of if this if this social construct, this symbol that we have implanted, you know, uh, an agreed valued uh, upon has this inherent value uh, 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 in and of itself. It's if it's more than just a a means to exchange for services or goods, but it's a thing that in and of itself is valuable. Well then just gimme gimme gimme, right? I just want I just want right. as much of this thing as possible, but you have something really mind-blowing that you talk about when you talk about greed because we all say like, you know, oh, you know, money makes someone greedy, and you're saying, "No, no, money doesn't necessarily make you greedy. It's the perception that 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 money provides this perception of scarcity." And it's the perception of scarcity that makes us greedy. Like if we think that there aren't enough of something, then psychologically speaking, we try to get as much of that as possible, right? That's why like every once in a while, there's like a run on toilet paper or like chicken wings, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be, you know, not enough chicken wings for the super bowl. I got to get me as many chicken wings as possible. Someone has to convince you that money is scarce. So that you want more.
1: Uh, I totally remember during the early days of COVID, when the the food was flying off the shelves, I had this exact same reaction just personally. Just like we have a a housekeeper cleaning woman, Marisol, who's amazing. um, And she's worked with our family for a long time. She's super cool. And she was like going to the store and I was like, um, I I got scared. You know, I was reading these reports. I'm like, w- we need uh, noodles or pasta, something that keeps a yeah. long time. Cans of soup or beans, like any <laughs> beans. And then she called from like the, the grocery store. She's like, "There's nothing on the shelves except there is some beans." Get the and I put beans. It on Facetime. What kind of Get beans? beans. No, this is what happened. She put the Facetime on the beans, and it was like. It was like these weird navy beans from like Poland. And I'm not kidding. It was like Japanese black beans, but they don't look like any black beans you've ever seen before. And they were super expensive, by the way. It was like organic $4.50 for a bag of little (laughs) Japanese mung beans. And I was like, buy them, buy the beans. (laughs) And guess what? Guess where they are? They're yeah, on your on, on your pantry.
2: That's what I was gonna say. We
1: never made, we never cooked the beans. Well, I just, I totally bought into the scarcity mindset. Yeah, and well, or just like when you'd go to the, the when you went to the grocery store and they were like
2: one toilet paper for per family, right? That's what. That's all you can yeah. have is one toilet. It's all this perception of scarcity. I don't think I've never heard anyone talk about the the issue of greed. In these terms. So, so help us understand exactly what you mean to so this idea that okay. money has to convince you of this lie. And okay, the lie yeah, that's is. that's not. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, no. Yeah, that's I, not look, quite it. No, no, but, no. I mean, hey, Charles, I mean, let me explain yeah. what you think. All right, buddy. Okay. I'm sorry. Go, yeah. Ahead. go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, Do it
3: the right um, way. Right. So, it sure looks like greed is the big problem in our society. And it sure makes a convenient target, you know, to blame greedy people for the inequality and the excess and all that. But I ask, I like to ask, because, right, you know, I, I kind of tend to think people are good, you know? So I ask, well, what makes somebody greedy? Under what circumstances does it make sense? And it is under circumstances of scarcity, or at least the perception of scarcity. If you are fully abundant and all your needs are taken care of and you have no reasonable doubt that they will continue to be taken care of, then why would you be greedy? If you live in a strong gift culture where I quoted one indigenous man in the in the book who was asked by an anthropologist, you know, you're a good hunter, you make a big kill, you know, why don't you smoke the meat and store the meat? Um, so you'll have it for months and months in case there's no game. You don't do that. Instead, you just hold a feast and it's all gone in one day. And he and the hunter gatherer he said, No, you don't understand. I, I do store meat. I store meat in the belly of my brother. Oh, that's
4: awesome. Yeah.
3: Because mm. he knows that after he holds a feast like that, I mean, he's going to be invited to everybody else's right. feast, too. Mm. So mm. no mm. greed, like no hoarding, you know. So we don't live in that kind of situation. We live in a situation where there is no community to depend on. And our security, we are only as secure as the security of our money, generally speaking. So that, um, experience of scarcity, which, which barrages us from every direction. I mean, we have a society where, where everything is scarce, uh, quiet is scarce. Um, beauty is scarce. Connection, intimacy is, for many people, scarce. People are lonely. Um, uh, time. Mm. Time is scarce. Time is definitely f- scarce. If mm-hmm. You want to find leisurely people? You have to go to the third world. Mm. All of our labor-saving devices have somehow made us busier and busier, mm-hmm. maybe as we try to keep pace with the pace of technology. And money is scarce also artificially scarce the story is that there's a village okay and everybody is using chickens for money so whenever time they want to buy something they carry a couple of chickens under their arm you know and it's really inconvenient so one day um, a stranger comes to town with a with you know a white hat and fancy shoes and he says I have a much better solution instead of using chickens here I cut out some leather, Leather rounds, some little round pieces of leather. Use these instead. Each of these represents one chicken, and I'll give them to you to use. I'll give everybody in town 10 rounds to use. Uh, the only stipulation, though, is that after one year, every, that you have to give me 11 rounds back. I'm only to let you use them for a year, if they're a loan, an interest bearing mm-hmm. loan. So, and they say, well, if we're each getting 10 rounds, then how are we going to give you 11 back? And he says, oh, you'll see, you'll see. So they take the gift and they start using the rounds and it is very convenient. But because each one of them has to give 11 back, they are plunged into competition with each other in, into competition for not enough rounds. And whereas before they were generous and they shared, you know, and they looked out for each other. Now everybody's in competition with each other. And at the end of the year, most of the people can pay him his 11 rounds back, except for those who have gone bankrupt. That's basically, um, it's an illustration of how money is lent into existence. And what I added to this story is in fact, after a year, they can pay him back because by that time he's lent more rounds into existence. And that's how our financial system works. And that's why growth is necessary for it to function. And when the economy stops growing, then you have horrible problems, rising inequality, unemployment, uh, bankruptcy, and so forth. The economy has to grow because more money has to continually be lent into existence for people and businesses to have the wherewithal to repay the principal and interest on previous lending. So it just has to grow and grow and grow. And for it to grow, it's lent into existence um, to, to people who will pay it back who will be able to create new goods and services, who will be able to replace neighborly home building with insurance, to replace uh, children playing outside with daycare, to replace handmade clothes with the fashion industry, and so forth. These are all market expanding business ventures with, uh, these are capital investments that bring a return. So we get more and more and more of these, a relentless pressure uh, to expand forever and ever until all of nature and all of culture has been monetized. So That's, you have to come up with new ways to use chickens. Ne-
2: necessarily, the only way that you're going to come up with that extra piece of leather is essentially to take it from someone else. So someone is going to lose in that in that case. You know, if there's ten of you, nine of you will do just fine. Nine of you will will return eleven. But one of you now has nothing. And it's like, that is the foundation of our entire financial system. But
1: I, but I don't know that I, I even agree with that, Reza. I think it's like someone is going to end up with the 13 rounds and someone's only going to have four. And then that person who had 13, then the next year, they've turned that into 28 rounds. Yeah. And people have less. than Then they're borrowing from him. And he's like, I'll pay you back, but you've got to pay me a 12 I'll give you ten, but you got to pay me twelve back. And he increases the interest rates, and so that's how we have this kind of like polarization so of like, the of the haves and the have nots. It's like
2: money. Money can work only if we create the illusion of scarcity. It's the scarcity that then leads, you know, essentially to to greed, and then the greed kind of necessitates debt, and debt is the key. To the entire system, like it, it
1: works, be, works uh, because of debt. So, wh- so what's the answer? Where do we go? How <laughs> take us? Bring it. Bring us. Bring this on home, uh, in, in, Charles. In simple I guess, terms, Charles. In
2: simple terms,
1: please. Well, I, I, and let me give a suggestion. Is perhaps where we're going, and I'm going to bring this back to science fiction. Is perhaps where we're going, treconomics, because oh, think about. Star Trek. What happens in Star Trek? I'm a big Trekkie, Trekker geek. Uh, So is Reza. Are we talking about... So we have replicators. You can have a bowl of soup. You can have Earl Grey tea. Then scarcity is eliminated, and there is simply no need for money. And so humanity's purpose, then, is to live in peace and harmony and explore the universe. Is that Mm -hmm. a potential path
3: for us going forward? Yeah, okay. So... Scarcity already has been eliminated, fundamentally, despite the fact that a huge proportion of the world's population lives in dire poverty. Mm. The reason that they are in poverty is not because there isn't enough. It's because it's not distributed equitably. Half the world wastes enough food to feed the other half several times over. So. The 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 problem is artificial scarcity. We are fundamentally in a very abundant world. Hunter hundred gatherers lived abundantly. They spent an average of 20 hours a week on subsistence, less than people spend today. The problem, though, is that our system is geared around scarcity and it generates scarcity. So the most obvious example, like we don't have replicators like Star, Star Trek does yet, or I don't know if we ever will, but we do have a huge sector of the economy, a huge category of goods that are of that nature, which is mm-hmm. digital goods. It does not cost cost any more. Like it, To make the first copy of a movie costs a lot of money. To make the second copy costs nothing. Mm-hmm. To make the third copy costs nothing. There's no reason that for people to pay for movies because the natural price point of something that has a marginal cost of production of zero is zero. So in order for movies to remain a business, they have to create artificial scarcity. You have to create paywalls. You have to create digital rights management. So this is just like the most glaring example of artificial scarcity that is totally unnecessary. And to make it more Personal, it's like, okay, we could change the system, right? But you can also change your individual actions. And one way that I've done this and explored and I, you know, help others to, to move into is to implement gift economics for digital goods, where, for example, I make an online course or something like that. And, and I'm like, you decide what to pay for it. Could be zero. But I'm not going to put it behind a paywall. Cause like, what if, you know, you're struggling to pay the groceries, you know, like I don't want you to pay then. Mm-hmm. And if you're making a seven figure income, I would gratefully accept, um, 10 times more than you would ordinarily pay for an online course. So I, I use this business model, which is based on a different view of human nature. Conventional economics says human beings maximize rational self interest. And the new story says, human beings desire to give. And they respond to generosity with gratitude, which births generosity in turn. And guess what? The proof is in the pudding. My business model works. Hmm. And it works for other people, too. It's There's, you know, some...
1: Radiohead did it with their album. Radiohead did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. right.
3: Um, o- open source software works like that in some cases. Like, you can do it. Um, and how, there's how some, we, you know, hurdles to get over, but, it, right. but it's, it's totally feasible. How do
2: we expand that to sort of other aspects of economy? How do we insert this concept of a, of a sacred relationship into the way that we interact with, you know, money, uh, you know, in, in, our, in sort of other non-digital realms, like going like to food. the store or food or, or property or things like that, you know, like, what, what does it require in in our psychological uh, workings? What kind of shift is necessary for us to start thinking about money in a different way?
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the shifts necessary is to um, create money in a different way, to have it represent a different system of agreements that no longer compels more competition and more scarcity than there would be already. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as scarcity and that we could abolish competition. But we have a system that generates more and more and more of it mm. mathematically. We could change those mathematics by having a different system of money creation. And the other thing is to bring ourselves back into more robust Multidimensional relationships with each other, especially locally, especially in community, to, to reclaim not all, but some of those parts of life that have been um, exported onto the money world, to start doing things for each other with our own hands and, and for each other again, to you know, gather together, to sing together again, to build together again to cook food for each other, to grow food for each other, to do more things locally. By doing that, we reclaim, to share more. Mm. You know, the average lawnmower is used, you know, an hour a week. Why does every single garage need one? Um, Would we be poorer if we shared our lawnmowers? No, we'd be richer, actually. You'd have more occasion to meet the neighbors, you know? So so this is... Partly it's a shift in system, and partly it's a shift in our our attitudes. And and I think you know, maybe it takes a crisis, maybe it takes a breakdown in the current system, like when there's a natural disaster or something, and people come together because mm. they have to, and they then they remember. Like some people say, that was the best week of my life mm. when after the hurricane hit, after the blackout happened.
1: One of the things you talk about in your book is this concept that capitalism is based on infinite growth with finite resources. It's unsustainable and you talk at great length about how, you know, these systems may have worked in the past and they got us to a certain point, but now they're breaking down and they cannot work going forward. So, um, Maybe it does. Maybe we do need just uh, a, a, the, the big crash uh, yeah. to kind of force our hand to completely rethink our relationship to money and economics. I think that's the, the strongest argument that you make in the
2: book is that no matter what you think of, you know, my solution to this, the way that we should rethink money and the way that we should rethink um, scarcity, the alternative is collapse? like I mean it. it's everyone who thinks about this for more than a few minutes recognizes how unsustainable it is and yes I know we, we we talk about like the great economic collapse of you know the 20s or the huge economic collapse of 2008 or we're now moving towards another economic collapse and we don't sort of put two and two together and realize well maybe there's a fundamental flaw in the system if we keep having these economic collapses right um So it's like, what's the alternative? You know, I mean, it it may seem like a a big thing to ask of of you know human civilization to rethink capitalism as we know it, but you know, the alternative is that we just keep having these you know uh, collapses of the global economy until finally there's no way to build
3: up again. Each of these crisis points, each of these collapses, it doesn't save us from ourselves but it provides us with a moment of choice. Either we double down on the old story, we go even more into debt, more into inequality, or we say enough and we build a new system based on ecological values, based on compassion, based on abundance. Yeah. That's the choice that comes again and again. All right, Charles, uh,
2: it is now time for what we call our lightning round. So uh, what we're just gonna do is we're gonna just kind of throw Sort of random big questions at you, and you just answer—you know—the first thing that that comes to your mind. All, All right. right, you ready? You ready for this? Let's do it. All right, here yep. we go. Uh, if you were stranded on an island, what three items would you take with you?
3: Uh, a knife, um, um, a hat, <laughs> and um, a lighter. I, I will
1: know. sell you those three items uh, I'll give you a hat for 1999 and a lighter for 3.99 and a knife for 39.99 uh, available at metaphysicalmokeshake.com um, what is something that no one or very few people know about you? We've stumped you.
3: yeah, I'm like so so freaking public you know um, and tend to overshare even. Um, Something that few people would know about you. Um, just, um, but I was uh, a stay-at-home dad for, for several years. Oh, nice. That's great. Uh, what book changed your life? Order Out of Chaos by Priggein and Stengers.
1: Wow. Okay. Mark that one down. What do you think happens to us after we die?
3: Um, we have a profound experience. Okay. <laughs> I like that.
2: Uh, if you had a time machine, where and when would
3: you go? I would go to the year 3000. Future. In the year 3000. Uh, what recharges your soul? Going for walks with no timeline. No. You have Beautiful. kids, so
2: there's always a timeline.
3: Yeah, without,
2: yeah. without kids without, or yeah. timeline,
3: without a schedule. You know, yeah. without like, um, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, 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 nowhere to be. Um, what's one thing about yourself that you would like to change?
3: You know, it's like in a process of change. I almost don't want to jinx it by <laughs> right. saying I still like to change it when it actually is already changing and maybe changed but let's say um in recent years i've been changing my habit of approval seeking Mm. Mm.
1: great good one good one one. that's a good one what gives you hope for humanity
3: the overwhelming beauty that i find when i really look closely and deeply into somebody's eyes Mm. like mine if i did <laughs> yeah it's like wow yeah. like beauty when when you such a divine being exists how could i be hopeless you know
2: That's, i'd like yeah. to end there uh, yeah. and then finally uh what is your life's big question why
1: you you and my six-year-old same question why that's good. If you can line up your life's big question with that of a six-year-old, I think you're on to something. I agree. I agree. That's beautiful. Uh, Charles Eisenstein, thank you so much. Uh, as you know, we are Eisenstands, and even more so after this incredible discussion you've given us so much to think about and really thank you for giving so generously your gift of your time, your wisdom, your knowledge. Uh, thank you.
3: It was fun. I enjoyed it as well. All right. Take care, Charles. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Wow, that was mind-blowing, man. I just love his writing so much. It is so specific, but yet so all-encompassing, so universal. It's Yes, it's about economics and making them sacred and kind of reimagining our relationship with money and economies, but it's about so much more. It's about humanity. It's about... Humanity evolving to a next level. Um, it's just beautiful. And this whole idea of this gift economy, it's really inspired me. And, you know, um, Reza, I would like to gift you something. Oh. I'd like to give you know what I'd like to give gift you any number of things from right here, from what you can oh. see on camera, from my desk. I have um a uh, a uh, 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 a little mini sword from Morocco.
2: Oh, that's uh, made cool. out of
1: silver. I would like to give this to you. I have, um, I have a tape dispenser. That's uh, nice. It's not as nice very... as
2: the sword,
1: obviously. Mm-hmm. But okay, I'll give it all to you. I, I mean, care. I think it's. If I was. This is my of... father's pocket knife right here oh, that's... that he had. He bought in the seventies. Like he passed away this year. I would like wow. to give you my father's pocket knife. I've so much now more I'm... I want to give you.
2: I'm looking around. What How do you I'm... have? For, what do you have for me? Well, I, I'll be honest. I was sort of hoping that you were going to say you were going to gift me, you know, some of your office uh, profits. But, but okay. Um, oh yeah. So yeah. how about? Sure. Um, uh, what do I? What do I have here? I have, a, I have a. I have actually, a, a little
1: hand massager that I think. Okay. I think
2: you know. I feel like. You Are got you fucking some-
1: kidding me? Well, I'm talking about my father's pocket knife. I'm talking about a Moroccan sword. <laughs> and you're talking about my hand massager. Are you kidding I, well, me? Hold that's on. not how the gift economy works. I'm giving you this stuff so you gift me something awesome and precious, too. <laughs> Wait, you missed the entire a, point. I'm what am I going to sure. get out of this? What I'm am not... I going to get out of this interaction?
2: Ruler? Trevor Wolf, come and join us. Ow! Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Where are you calling from?
0: I'm calling from Morrison, Colorado, near Denver, Colorado. Ah, near
2: Denver. Are you you a Broncos fan?
0: I am a Broncos fan.
2: I'm wearing a Peyton Manning t-shirt right now. Oh, the days of Peyton Manning. Do you you miss them? Oh, yeah. Remember when Peyton Manning took the Broncos
1: to the Super Bowl? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes,
0: he did a good job.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh Trevor, you have a que- you have a question about uh Christianity and forgiveness. I am dying to find out what this is what this is all about.
0: Yes, me too. I would love to hear everyone's perspective. Yeah, so I just come from a Christian viewpoint and I'm just wanting to know are we able to know if we can be forgiven of our sins and who is able to forgive us of our sins. We actually
2: we actually did this very interesting um podcast episode. I think it ran already. I'm not sure Um, about the idea of forgiveness. And one of the things that we thought what we were talking about forgiveness, which is so funny, is that it's so often a transactional thing. Do you know what I mean? Like so so often when we when we forgive someone, it's like in order to receive something, maybe even not from them, like in order to receive something from the world or in order to receive, you know, something about just feeling better or whatever the case may be. And I was thinking about this because I've read the Bible a few times. That might come as a shock, but I have read the Bible a few times. And one thing that I've always noticed
1: about the way- You should write a book about it.
2: (laughs) One thing that I've always noticed about the way the New Testament especially talks about forgiveness is that it's- it does have this transactional quality to it, right? Like Matthew six fourteen, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And I mean, we can talk about like the whatever, like the spiritual significance of it's very being quid forgiven pro quo. by God. But yeah, do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm saying, Rain? Do you do, do, mm-hmm. do you do you feel the kind of
1: transactional nature? Yeah, but but I think I think you know Jesus' audiences was you know for the most part like. Fisher people and laborers, and you kind of you have to teach in a certain way. So, um, but I think you know forgiveness is a is a large question. Obviously, Trevor's coming from a specifically Christian background, but I think that there is something really beautiful in the act of forgiveness. Um, We have to learn how to forgive ourselves, right? Um, And there is a certain as a theist and and a and a practicing religious person. I know, mind blowing this act of contrition of uh asking for to be absolved of the wrongs one have, one has done with our creator is very powerful and very mm-hmm. humbling and we live in a world where humility is not prized as you notice we don't we don't elect the most humble person as the president right we we uh, have the most you know kind of most loud and op- an opinionated person as president not necessarily the most humble so there is a humility in that and and then we need to ask occasionally a forgiveness from one another. I, I recently had a, a conflict with a very good friend of mine who I felt like really hurt me and um uh and just wronged me in a number of ways. And he's a dear, dear old friend. And it's not we me, had a series right? of conversations. It wasn't you, Rose. Oh, thank God. Classic narcissist. It's not about you. And um now, please forgive me for saying that, Reza. That was a little mean. <laughs> I forgive you. I was a little mean. Will I you forgive, forgive me? you as the Lord okay. has forgiven me. Thank you. The Lord will now, as you've forgiven me, the Lord will now forgive you of being a, a boob. But uh, it was an interesting thing because he apologized to a certain extent. I kind of wished he had taken further responsibility. But at the at the end of the day, I was like, "Listen, this guy's been a really good friend of me. I've known him a long time." And I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to like take this active step uh, in my heart. I'm going to say, I forgive you for this. Hmm. And uh, it's proactive. And immediately I felt better. And I, ha- I had a relief on my shoulders. And, you know, we're the friendship is healed. And we text and we joke and we work together and uh, have a great time. And um, so I think that there is, um, you know, I think there's a hmm. lot to that. No, as far as like, You know, if you're talking from the Christian perspective about hell, you know, I don't buy it. I don't, I don't buy that God would create 7 billion people, put them on a planet, have half of them not even hear about Jesus in order that he has this (laughs) plan to cast half of them into eternal damnation. If they don't ask for forgiveness, um, or accept any certain religious figure as their, as their Lord and savior, but that's a whole other discussion. But it's a related discussion. But I think the, the, at its core, the idea of forgiveness has a lot of different levels and layers to it. And I know that I have been at times in my life in prayer and in meditation asking for forgiveness from a power greater than myself. And there is, it is a beautiful act mm. and a humbling act of contrition that is very emotional and um, has made my life richer. Trevor, what do you think?
0: Yeah, but I think that one thing I really think with uh, forgiveness, it's on, for, for me to forgive someone, it's all on my part. The other person, they they don't have to accept my forgiveness, and we don't have to reconcile, we don't have to get along anymore, we don't have to like each other anymore, but forgiveness is all for me. It's really freeing to forgive people, and I think of what Jesus did for us on the cross, uh, he, for, he forgave everyone, including me, who the sinner who's done things and I, all, all my good works are like dirty, filthy rags, as I see in Isaiah 64. Um, what I also see is that forgiveness can be hard, forgiving other people, but it wasn't easy for Jesus to be on the cross and be able to take my position. Um One thing you're talking about, Reconciliation, one of my favorite passages is Second Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness righteousness of God. We give God our sin, and what Jesus gives us is eternal life. So it is an exchange. I think that is one of the biggest gifts that we can ever get. I take uh,
2: Jesus' words very literally, and you know, he said he was asked, "Should I forgive my brother seven times?" and he said, "No, you should forgive him seventy-seven times." So I will always. Forgive you 77 times, but that's 78th time, Rain. Forget
1: it. That's 78th time, it's over. Trevor, someone mentioned that you knew someone that I knew?
0: Yes, I actually know several people you know of, but uh, I know Steve Sarowitz.
1: Oh, nice. Okay, great. Yes.
0: Yeah, i met him in Toronto at the Parliament of World Religion.
1: Oh, yeah. He's a wonderful dude, Baha'i friend of mine, and a uh, uh, great, great human being and philanthropist. That's great. Awesome.
0: Yep, I do a Rui
1: class with him
0: every Wednesday.
1: Oh, fabulous. Oh, great. Yeah. All right. Well, give him my best, please. And Trevor, thanks so much for sharing your perspective and calling into the show. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Thanks for uh, Charles Eisenstein for all of his incredible wisdom about sacred Economics. That's right. Uh, diving into the milkshake of the metaphysical. Do you guys want more of life's big questions? Find us on social media at Reza Aslan, at Rain Wilson, at Metaphysical Milkshake on all the socials. Let us know what you thought. Is a, a sacred economy possible? Um, give us your life's biggest questions. We just might explore them on a future episode. And you know, by the way, it's free. Like you don't have to pay for
2: this podcast. You don't have to. There may be some ads.
1: Pay.
2: Yeah. some ads. Yeah, there may be just some ads through it. You have to just yep. like, you know, do what I do is fast forward through the ads. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Pay attention listen to, to our, our ads. <laughs>
1: ads. We are gifting you this conversation and in return, listen to our sponsors That's right. and and buy stuff from them. And uh, you know what else is free? It's free to follow,
2: rate and review Metaphysical Milkshake on the Apple podcast. Or Excellent wherever you transition listen to your
1: podcasts, frankly. Well done. You can also subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel and also watch free. our, which is free. You hit that skip ad after the five seconds. Skip ad, skip ad, skip ad. Uh, and you can watch our full episodes of our conversations every week. Thanks again to
2: Charles Eisenstein. Mind blowing. We'll see you next week.
1: Thank you. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang.
2: You're like, you're one of those people who has like a lot of devoted fans online. You're like, if. If Jordan Peterson were, were not a misogynist prick, that would that's kind of you, like I feel like. President, that's so inappropriate. Is it, Charles Eisenstein, no. he
1: might be good friends with Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I thought you were going to say he might be a misogynist prick. prick. That's
2: what I thought you were going to say. I was like, <laughs> maybe. It's true. Could possibly. Yeah. Probably not, though.
4: Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt.